big 2 0. Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 20. How are you guys doing this week? Doing pretty good. Yeah? So, did you guys see bit by Brent Simmons go out the piece called Love? And it was a talk about, or not a talk, it was a blog post about app marketing and just the love that we share of apps and how we don't really share things with each other anymore. I did see it when you sent it over to me. I agree <laughs> with, with all those things. Yeah. And I, I noticed that even at work, we don't go up to each other anymore and say, Hey, I just check, check out this app. You really need to see this. And you know, that just doesn't happen anymore. I don't know if you guys do it so much at atomic robot i think part of it's we're kind of in the midst of developing apps so unless we see an app that's doing something cool that we want to emulate you know we're not necessarily going out looking for apps i i think we do it a lot more with desktop apps i certainly have shared links and you know features in desktop apps that i i think other people would benefit from probably more than i have on ios yeah, well, I used to just like to see other people's apps, only to see how they're doing something unique, whatever kind of new UI they're they're trying out, or just even to how they handle pictures and stuff. Like, so that's really cool, and I don't get that at work anymore. And I just don't think is a culture anymore. We don't do that so much, and that. But that was a really helpful thing. Part of me wants to say that. Uh, you know, some of the conventions have um, kind of solidified over the past couple of years. But the other part of me is, is kind of like, well, I still see people like doing the same good and bad things and doing different things when I mess around with apps. So maybe it's just like we're a little bit burnt out with it. But I, I think we could definitely use a little bit more sharing of, of cool apps that we find. Yeah. Well, maybe it also... It all kind of happened when Apple threw all the cowhides and felt on the bonfire and gave us a flat look. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think the the creative aspects of it aren't necessarily there like they used to be. Patterns are fairly well established. Um, but there are definitely apps that innovate and, and do unique things. It's just oh, yeah. there's not, the discoverability is not there. It's hard to find those apps short of, you know, following design designers in the space that that share their work yeah there's just different kind of innovations that we have now it's not oh look what cool skeuomorphic thing i did (laughs) so look how this thing interacts with this other thing now or something like that well even like oh look at this cool pull to rate refresh animation i think i don't know if it if it's a yelp or if it's meetup one of those two has a or at least it did have a really cool pull to refresh animation where it had this little guy going into a rocket ship and then the rocket ship taking off. That was pretty fun. Just seeing things like that, I like I like to see. But to that end, I want to do a little something for our listeners. 
So if you guys are working on an app, <clears throat> you have an app in the App Store, and you want to get some exposure to it, tweet us the, the app link, and we'll feature it on the show in an upcoming in an upcoming episode. We'll just do one per show. <clears throat> and if you happen to have a pay app, a promo code would be nice because we're, we're doing this out of the kindness of our hearts, and we don't have any sponsorship or anything like that, so we'd... We'd appreciate a promo code, but free apps, paid apps, whatever, and uh, we'll try to get the word out about your app. And definitely would favor indies over you know big corporations. You know, help the the little guys who don't have the marketing muscle get the word out about their apps. And make sure you send stuff in because if you don't, then we're going to be talking about our apps, and no one wants that. So <laughs> yeah, so tweet us at at sharedinst on Twitter. It's you guys have heard us every week saying shared in uh, it's S A H S H A R E D I N S T. Uh, there is another Twitter account called shared instance and that's not us. We'll uh, pull one each week and check it out. We will definitely give it a good review or good overview. And uh, then we'll talk about it on the podcast. So free publicity for you guys. And if you have friends that are, that have apps as well. Tell them, tweet us, and we'll take a look. So, guys, one other thing. Um, we've been talking about this subject a little bit. Um, learning Objective-C versus learning Swift. Should a new programmer pick up one or the other, or should they try to pick up both? What do you guys feel? I think no matter what you do, you're going to run into Objective-C. So I, I really don't think there's... Avoiding Objective C, you know, mostly because there's all the standard libraries are written in Objective C and a lot of third-party libraries. Uh, but I think going forward, any new apps, uh, people just now getting into iOS development should probably focus on Swift. It's clearly where Apple's making their their investment, at least in in terms of what they're requiring or promoting to developers. You know, for example, with the scholarship program that Apple had this year for WWDC, students have to had to include Swift as part of their application. Yeah, I had to have at least a little bit of Swift. And the other thing I noticed was that and I think we've talked about this a little bit too, is that the only code that was shown on the vid, on the slides at Dubdub was Swift code. Unless it was how not to do something, then it was an Objective C. Did you guys see that? I didn't see very much Objective C code. I think I may have missed some of the how not to do things sessions, but it sure seems like I guess I would agree with Alex here that if you're starting out, Swift is the way to go. I'm not sure if you would if you should even bother with Objective C because you'll you'll kind of get the uh, the the Swift headers which is really all you need to use someone else's code. I mean, it'd be nice, I guess, to, to know both. But if you had to pick one, I'd definitely say Swift would be the way to go for someone starting now. Yeah. Asking this question, say, six months ago, and it wouldn't be a even really a good question. I wouldn't say Swift at all. But with the Swift 2 stuff, I really feel like that's coming along. It's... A much more mature language now. 
Yeah, I think the so, number of things that you can do in Objective C that you can't do in Swift are fairly small. And Swift is probably a much more approachable language for somebody new to development in general. Objective C is a little bit unique syntax compared to Swift, which is probably a little bit more familiar to somebody coming from Java or JavaScript. You know, their curly braces are going to make them feel at home. Square braces are are odd for a lot of people. I'd say, yeah, I'd say it's more approachable from someone coming from a different programming background, but I don't think it's that different from someone completely new. But I, I think you should probably just start with Swift and ignore Objective-C. I mean, the, the brackets are really what get everybody because we're all used to some other C-based language that uses parentheses to call things and all that fun stuff. Now, I'm a big fan of Objective-C and, and I lo- really enjoyed the language. Uh, I did too. Quite frankly, wow, when, the past tense. Uh, <laughs> when Swift was introduced, I think I've said this on the podcast before, I really had kind of a negative reaction to it. I I, I was happy with Objective-C. I liked the nice mix of object-oriented programming with dynamic language features and um i was had been programming in objective c for about five or six years at that point and was quite happy with it so when swift was introduced it was you know in one sense it was fixing a problem i didn't think i had and it also meant i had to kind of start over and and start learning swift and trying to master that it took me a good two weeks of Swift programming before I started to enjoy programming in Swift. Well, at least you're enjoying it now. <laughs> Actually, yeah. it's not the it's not too bad. It it took me a while to to get used to it and figure out okay what's going on here and what's going what am I doing here why is this why is this not compiling and whatnot but I I think I've gotten enough of the hang of it. I don't do it every day in my day-to-day job so I, f- I feel like i get a little bit rusty when i step away yeah but it's I, easy to pick back up i work in a large code base that has a lot of legacy objective c but it also has a lot a lot of swift so every day i'm kind of jumping back and forth between the two <laughs> <laughs> trying to not hit semicolon every time and yeah more often than not, I forget to add the semicolons in Objective-C than the other way around at this point. Yeah. So I, you mentioned about the dynamic nature of Objective-C, and that was one of the things that I loved about it, too. I, I really did fall in love with that. But thinking back, the, the dynamic stuff that I used, you know, um, extensions, your categories, which are now extensions, uh I tried some swizzling a little bit and then got my hand smacked by Argo. Um, trying to think what other dynamic things I actually it's, tried to do. It's probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> you know, Ruby guys, they don't monkey patch swizzle. everything. <laughs> they monkey That's something patch. that you do back in college. That's not something that you continue to do. <laughs> but so, really, I mean, were we actually utilizing all the dynamic possibilities in objective c and those that we were using do we now have equivalents in swift 
in most cases I would say we do. It's things like reflection and duct typing and key value coding that we just don't have at the moment, or at least don't have a great support for. That's true. And I guess also saying like response to selector and then invoking a, a selector and creating a selector from a string, those kinds of things. Still can't do that unless I guess we fall back to Objective C compatibility in Swift. I don't know. Can you do that? Yeah. I mean, if you extend NS object and put at dynamic on on your properties, you can. You can still do things like KVO, uh, but it still feels kind of dirty that you have to extend an NS object in order to to get those types of features. Right. So I will say with Objective-C, you know, we were talking about kids getting into programming the other day. And one of the things that I think my kids struggled with trying to learn Objective-C was the whole concept of header files. You know, it's just not really apparent right away why you even need header files. And things like Java and Swift, those, you know, interfaces are optional. So you can just jump right into a class and start coding. And you don't have that that abstraction there with how you do an Objective-C with header files. You mean you don't want someone who's new to programming to have to first comprehend the linking process in order to program. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or even Don't the whole concept of separating your interface from your implementation. So I, I think to some degree, just the lack of header files makes Swift that much more approachable to someone new to programming. I don't think yeah. it's the easiest <clears throat> language to learn. I think there's much easier languages to start off with. But I think Swift is easier than Objective C from that perspective. I can agree with that, and like macros too. I mean, Objective C doesn't have a lot of them, but they're there. And one thing that always bugged me about Windows C programming was that it was full of macros. Everything was a macro. Like your whole source file could just be nothing but capital strings, and it was just horrible. So. I'm glad at least Apple got that right with Objective-C. And now we don't have to worry about those at all. So so what are the other um, like Swift Swift 2 things that push you you guys over the edge to say, all right, now, now it's ready. Now this is what I'd recommend people do. Well, I, th- I think really it, it came with Swift 1-2 to some degree. Okay. Yeah, the... The whole if let thing getting much easier. Yeah. Uh, now also we have the guard statement, so you can kind of invert your if let. So your your uh, guard statement will have a graceful exit if the value is nil. The optional value is nil. So I think that's nice. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think the error handling stuff they did with Swift two is. It's fairly ro- robust. I don't. It may not be super simple to to figure out because there's a lot of different ways to to handle errors, but it covers a lot of common cases. I think I like it so far. Yeah. Did you find? Have you found yourself though writing a lot of tri bang statements 
or do you actually gracefully handle your errors? Ah, uh, it depends what I'm what I'm writing for. I try not to try bang, but it's a lot of try. Yeah. Yeah, I think anytime you see an exclamation point, it's a bad thing. Uh, I've, yeah. I've seen some third-party libraries jumping on the Swift 2 that are throwing exceptions that you can't recover from. Oh, so like, I'm, I, there's absolutely actual, no, no point to it. Like actual exceptions? Like well, Objective-C yeah, style NSRs. exceptions? They're, they're forcing oh. you to... They add the throw clause to the method. Okay. Uh, and then you ha- have these try blocks or you're doing try Do in catch. a lot of places. Yeah. And you can't that, recover from them, so why throw an error? Hmm. So you, are you saying that they're not using them properly? Right. Yeah, there's there's places where it makes sense and places that don't. And if you can't recover from the error, you, you're better off just having a, a runtime error than throwing right. an error that you can't do anything with. And mm. this was an open source library that I ran into the other day, and their example code had about 10 tries in one block because they were hey, throwing it... on every single line. Or every single method call would throw. Right. Yeah, I can see that. I guess we're going to have some growing pains. The the whole try-catch thing, It's to me, yeah, it's not an exception, but it's not really like an error pointer. And you have to handle it. So now it's really starting to make me think back to Java checked exceptions. Right. And I know those got a bad rap after a while, but I didn't mind them that much. But... Now, having to come back to that, I'm kind of like, do I really need to hit this try and put it in a catch? I guess I got spoiled on doing Objective-C style error handling and just passing in nil for the error pointer and not caring if it, (laughs) you know, that was bad practice, I know, but. Well, you can still try bang if that's how you roll. Yeah. But then your app actually crashes instead of just kind of meanders on. I think the moral of the story is there are some really good reasons that you want to be able to catch exceptions, you know, things like file parsing or, you know, anything to do with the file system. Um, And there are legitimate use cases for it, but it's something you want to use judiciously. Right. And then it's also, you know, they always say it's a good habit to not let exceptions bubble up to the top. So you shouldn't let a database exception bubble up to your user interface code so your user sees that. So really, it's going to take a lot more work now to kind of wrap these errors into user-facing errors. So if you can't add a record to a database, you don't want to tell the user, yeah, I can't add a record. It's going to be more like, hey, I can't add this journal entry or something. So prior to Apple adding this feature in Swift 2, uh, there was an emerging pattern using the result enum. And 
conceptually that was kind of a nice way of, of doing it where you could have the enum have either either the results or an error returned from from the method call mm-hmm. and, and see- this is kind of going in a different direction but it doesn't solve the whole concept of something that's being called asynchronously with a callback where you might have right. re- you might still want to return a result object and, and handle the error inside of the async block yeah and async blocks correct me if i'm wrong they can't throw right any any closure yeah. can't throw i don't think it can throw across the thread boundary okay so i so i believe you're correct yeah so it's not a complete pattern yet we're not going to have all kinds of closures dispatched async and then throwing and whatever. That's, I guess that's good, but we I'd, still have answers or questions. Yeah. I had kind of hoped Apple would provide some guidance in that area, you know, put a pattern out there for people to, to consider with async processing. Uh, but I think they skipped over that concept at WWDC, so there's been a lot of various folks on the blogosphere trying to answer that question for themselves. I don't know if anybody's really done a thorough job of or has a good grasp of how they want to handle it yet. So what is uh, defer about? Defer is mentioned along with the error handling. It is in some sense the equivalent of the finally block in Java exception handling. Uh, But basically, it's a little higher level in that it just says execute this block of code at the end of the current scope. Oh, nice. So I could say close a file point handler, file pointer, if I have pointers. The deferred block doesn't have to be at, at the end of the method either you can declare it at the top or somewhere in the middle but it'll be executed at the end and it's kind of like defining your exit conditions at the beginning of the method yeah so i don't have to scroll down say 20 lines to see if somebody is cleaning up a a file pointer or something very good probably one of the the biggest new features most powerful new features is protocol extensions prior to swift 2 you couldn't there's no way to extend a protocol you know there you can't have a subclass of a protocol so if you want to add behavior or or default implementations for methods you couldn't do that before so now with protocol extensions you can have default implementations which lets you do some interesting things. You know, so if if I had UI table view data source, I couldn't have Sam's table view data source that extended that, right? Is that right. the same? Okay. Yeah. And and they took it one step further, and now you're able to add method implementations as well. Right. So let's say equal equal for example. So with array and set, those are 
structs and they implement a protocol, but you can't have one implementation for both. Um, so now you can have a default implementation for equal equal in some scenarios. You know, where the nice thing sense. I saw, yeah, the nice thing I saw about that was that it cleaned up all these free floating functions that they had sitting around in the runtime. So was it things like map? They can just map onto. They can just glom that into a protocol and away they go right like map and filter and things like that is a lot reads a lot nicer and gets rid of some of the generics you know having to read these generic implementations can be a little bit cumbersome so that gets cleaned up a bit yeah i I can't wait because uh the reactive coco guys they had to use a lot of these free floating functions for their operators and things and i it's just hard to remember those so they are supposedly having that on the roadmap to put those into a protocol and we'll be able to then say signal dot something. And pre-floating functions have their place, but um, protocol extensions make protocol-oriented programming becomes a lot easier. Yeah. Do you guys think that that's really a thing or is it more of a marketing term that somebody came up with? It's a difficult thing to explain without examples, and I, even kind of the first time it showed up on the slides, it wasn't necessarily obvious what the how to use it and what the power was. Uh, so I definitely recommend going back and watching the sessions and watching the the protocol-oriented programming session. Yeah, that was a good just one. Just to get a better it- feel for it. It's, it's kind of a it's kind of a um, cheesy storyline anyway, but yeah, yeah I like yeah. that. Is that about all. Fox? That's the, the one that featured Krusty. Okay, Krusty. That sounds yeah. fun. Sounds like I'm gonna have to watch this one. Yeah, it starts out pretty cheesy, but it gets a lot better and meatier uh, subject matter as it goes into it. Yeah, it, and it's funny because they start out with Krusty is this crotchety old programmer and he doesn't believe in newfangled things like object oriented. And then, uh, they kind of do this little contest shootout thing. And then it's like, Oh, well this, the other, the presenter slowly realizes that Krusty's way of doing things is really the modern way of doing things. So Krusty was more of a functional programmer, I guess. And, so it turns out, spoiler alert, Krusty's not so crusty. Oh, no, don't tell me. <laughs> I still haven't watched it yet. Oh. Oh, man. Now, now I can't watch it. I'm going to know what's going to happen. I, I said spoiler one of the alert. Few sessions so. that Apple repeated uh, due to yeah. high demand. Or because they didn't have Apple TV sessions. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good one, it sounds like. Right. Which is why they chose that one. So I, I know we got a couple other things. I'm sure if you've been doing Swift for a while, uh, you've seen the switch case statements with pattern matching, uh, which is maybe a little bit of an advanced feature of a switch statement. Uh, but they took the same power of that pattern matching and applied it to other control control statements like the the for statement and the if statement. 
So now you can combine those those case matching statements with the where clause inside of a for loop or an if statement. So it, it reduces the code by maybe a line or two, you know, where you might loop oh, yeah. over a collection and then do an if check to see if it matches a condition. Now you can do that condition inside of the for loop definition. I think they even have the the pattern matching for catch statements too, which should make some of that code not as bulky. Yeah, because you don't just catch error. You can just catch, but then you can also do the pattern match and the catch to narrow it down to certain errors or error types. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of those things that's small, but has a big ripple throughout our program day-to-day programming. It's definitely going to be one of those things that simplifies code. I think the the last big feature added to Swift 2 worth mentioning is availability checking. So now the compiler is will tell you if you're using methods that aren't supported on your target iOS version. Uh, so before there were really just a couple ways of handling that or verifying that you aren't calling methods not supported is you know one is to run it on all the different versions and two I, there's a third party tools that can do some checking for you but I don't know how good they are but this bakes it into the compiler so now you get the compiler errors if you try and use something you shouldn't be using so I think that will eliminate a whole class of crashes and I think that's better than doing your own operating system parsing, operating system version parse check. Or... And, and there's so many different ways of doing that, depending on what version of iOS you're on. And a lot of the early attempts at doing it weren't very safe. So this and when is, we get yeah. to iOS 10, we're going to run into all sorts of problems for people <laughs> who are doing uh, the string comparison. So. Yeah. <laughs> so this new pound available lets you around a block of code targeted for a specific version um, which will let you potentially more easily adopt newer features safer inside your code inside of your apps yep. so you could do this before it's just a cleaner implementation now and they even have a placeholder in there for future platforms so there's OS 10 iOS but also a placeholder for platform to be determined later I wonder what it could be yeah Mike. but I mean it is nice being able to the fact that this is all backwards compatible you can write your Swift 2 code that will do something on iOS 7 and on iOS 8 and 9 all differently if there's different ways to do it um, which is it's a lot easier to do that than it used to be. Yeah, previously I know I always did like a response to selector or check to see if a class was available and then then in an if statement. And one thing that I thought that was interesting is that they said that sometimes these APIs exist in the previous versions of the code or in op- of the operating system, but they may not function exactly the same way as the when it becomes public. 
So like if they had if they had something in say table views, then maybe like the maybe like auto sizing table view cells in iOS seven, but then they didn't let us use it until eight. That that feature might actually be in seven, and then you check if it responds to the a particular selector to see if you can try to use that. Then your program might go kind of crazy. Yeah. I would just drop support for iOS seven. Forget that stuff. Should we support iOS seven these days? Yeah, let's say like I've got an existing app, and I want to start using eight and up features like uh, size classes for your iPad stuff or watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, size classes they do have some backward compatibility. As long as you're not using iPhone in a landscape mode, you can do that okay. Yeah. But trying to say, am I a is my size class regular width or compact width? That'll blow up on 7. I think but, right now iOS 7 still has 14% of the market, which is a decent market share still. And it's kind of hard it to say that you wouldn't support that percentage of the market. But I think in your scenario where you have an existing app and you want to add new features to it that take advantage of iOS 8 or even iOS 9 functionality. If you release a new version that was iOS 8 and up, the old version would still be there for the iOS 7 users. So I don't think it's as bad as it used to be where the old version wasn't there. And, you know, if, if people didn't upgrade, they couldn't use your app anymore. Yeah, the only caveat there would be that users of iOS 7, when the new users trying to find my app, they wouldn't be able to find it is that correct i think they would still find that version the latest the last compatible one. version yeah i think you just get like a message when you try to download that says oh you don't support this version would you like to download the last available version okay there has been talk about people like wanting apple to kind of prune the app store of apps that don't support certain things but you should still be able to find it i wouldn't mind seeing them prune all those apps that only support the three and a half inch screen and ios 5 or 6 that's because that's just a lot of bloat junk in the store these days yeah yeah although i mean if if you give it a couple months we might be down to in a an amount that's it makes sense to drop support for iOS seven because having to test for three OSs, especially when you, it's really hard to even get a device on iOS seven these days if you don't have one. You basically have to like go buy a new one. Yeah. So I, hopefully, hopefully it'll be soon where the market share drops off when iOS nine comes out because we, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat that that you are, Sam, and that I still have to support it. There's yeah, there's still like fourteen percent, so. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. it's crossing my fingers. And you have all those users that want to play hearts on their watch, right? Yep. Yeah. And just to clarify, Swift 2 does support iOS 7, correct? Yep, it does. So that's... I don't think there Apple has there. stated anywhere that that's true. But people who have tested it say that it works. I couldn't find well, anything they've documented. Examples, they've got examples in their presentations where they like do an availability check on ios 7 so yeah it definitely seems to be the case uh, but i don't think apple said flat out that 
iOS or Swift 2 is supported 100% on 7 and and there are definitely features that that you probably want to double check or at least do thorough testing to make sure it's supported but all yeah. signs point to no. that, that being true that that you can use Swift 2 and Xcode 7 all the way back to iOS 7 alright well I think that's about all the time we have so why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet I am Sam Corder on Twitter. I'm AJ Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Alex Argo. And the podcast is Shared Inst on Twitter. Don't forget, we do want to promote your apps. So tweet us at Shared Inst with your app. Uh, Link to the App Store would be very nice. Uh, Also, reviews on iTunes and ratings are greatly appreciated. However, we're still accepting open letters uh, to Taylor Swift on our behalf. Yes, because we need her to get Apple to promote us on Beats. We all want to be Beats DJs, right? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> That's my uh, life goal now. Not really. So, yeah. Thanks, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Later. Happy coding. Just kidding. I'm going to cut that.